bad. All right. Good morning, church. This was a really good passage for me to prep. Um, this was really good for me to prep, and hopefully really good for me to preach to you. Why? Let me share a story with you. About 10 years ago, when I was a high school pastor, um, let's see, Kate is here, David is here, Lexi's here. Is David here? He's in kids. He's serving. See, that's what the youth group produced, servants there. Um, there is an older godly saint named Andrea who served with the youth. Um, she was a prayer warrior. You remember Andrea? And she had a Jamaican accent, which just increased and multiplied the aura of this godliness. <clears throat> and she pulled me aside one day and said, Sam, uh, I want to share something with you. I feel like the Lord, I was praying for you, and the Lord gave me a vision of you in my mind. And the vision goes like this. You are sprinting up a mountain with a giant heavy pack behind on you. And your whole flock is panting and crawling up the hill way behind you. And you have left them in the dust. And you're like, come on, guys, come on, keep up, run, 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 run. And they're just exhausted because you are pushing and pushing and pushing. And God used that word as well as a few other words and then an overall season of gospel awakening to start doing a deep surgery in my heart that's been slow but steady for the last decade, working in me, challenging me. This hit home because, as many of you know, I am not a slow kind of steady, just be kind of person. Some of you are smiling, especially those who've been with us from the beginning when we first started All People's Church. Some of this is my God-given wiring. God has made me this way. It's why I am who I am, but some of it comes from culture. I grew up in a culture, in a family like many of you, where affirmations were few and reminders or admonitions for improvement were plentiful. And so the subtle sense you grow up in a household like that, in a culture like that, is you're not enough. And if you grow and do what we told you to do, we're not going to acknowledge that. We're going to just talk about the next set of things you need to do. And unfortunately, but understandably, many of us who grew up with that home life, that culture, transfer this over into our relationship with our Heavenly Father. We feel like we're never enough. There's a low-grade sense of dread and discouragement and disappointment that we sense, we perceive as coming from heaven. We can create a deep sense of insecurity about our status with him, and it could drive ourselves either to despair or exhaustion as we try to perform enough for him, to be good enough for him. Some of you guys get that? And while I have grown deeply in my security with my heavenly father, by God's grace, I'm celebrating 20 years of knowing God in July. My activity is no longer primarily grounded from a place of looking to earn or to be approved by God. That's, that is mostly dead by God's grace. However, 
My wiring and my instincts are still one of progress. I love progress. I love practice. In any area of my life, I love getting better. Not because I'm trying to prove myself or, or, or feel secure, but I just love it. And that's not all bad. If I wasn't like that, all people's church may not exist as an individual church family. But it comes with some serious drawbacks, doesn't it? And one of the beauties of having a plurality of eldership at All People's Church is that these other brothers who have different instincts and personalities and backgrounds keep me in check so that you're not exhausted all the time, hopefully. And it's also essential that our church is committed to expository preaching, which means a lot of things, but at minimum, it means that we're going to go verse by verse throughout letters and books in the Bible, and it's going to force preachers to swim and steep in texts that they naturally would avoid that would grind against my natural instincts and my personality type and force me to faithfully tell you what the main point of the passage is to you and bring that home. That's a good thing for you. Don't be around a church that just does topical all the time because the pastors will tend to just gravitate towards their hobby horses and their personality styles. I would have never picked this passage. When we were doing our sermon prep summit a few months ago, and we looked at this passage, I thought to my head, I'm glad, I hope I don't get that passage. There's not a single command in this passage. It's just like, this is true. This is true of you. And I'm so grateful for it because it puts against, it pushes against my cultural background, my personality, my instincts, and my generational baggage. It puts it in check. So I was deeply challenged by the example of John in our passage this morning. You see, John is no longer a young buck. He first started following Jesus, likely as a teenager. At this point, he's maybe in his 70s, 80s, 90s. He's been through it. He is not just a father in the faith. He's like a grandpa or a great-grandpa in the faith. He has walked with Jesus for many decades through thick and thin. He has walked with many believers in all kinds of backgrounds and life stages. And he knows his flock well. And if you have been journeying along with us in our study of 1 John, John has said some really, really hard things. Really hard things. If you've actually listened, if you don't think it's hard, then you didn't even hear it. He said hard things. And notice, this church is coming from a pretty crisis situation. A noticeable group in the church has left, has taught heresy, and there's schisms, and there's Undoubtedly, confusion and destabilization among the church. Rattled, shaken by this situation. Good friends left. This is a hard situation. And there's uncertainty about what is actually true, what's not. What does it mean to actually follow Christ? What does it mean to be a son or daughter of God? And Grandfather John wants to strengthen them, wants to encourage them but he's also helping them discern the truth. He wants them to know what it really looks like to be God's child. But he's doing this not as an inquisitor. Not as an inquisitor, but an encourager. He writes at the end of the letter, 1 John 5.13. Look at it on the screen real quick. This is one of the purpose clauses of this whole letter. I write these things to you, these things, all the things that he shared and things that he will finish saying in this book, who believe, he's speaking to Christians, in the name of the Son of God. Why? That you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you may doubt you have eternal life, or that you may prove that you have eternal life, but that you may know. 
John's heart, Grandpa John, his heart is to encourage and help the believers have confidence and security that they know God, despite this really hard situation. A scholar, Karen Jobes, one of my favorite commentators on 1 John, says it like this. This is going to be a little long, but I think worth it. Listen, John lays down some hard teaching in verse 5 through 11. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie. Then verse 6, if we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves. Verse 8, the one who says, I know him and does not keep his commands is a liar. Chapter 2, verse 4, the one who hates his brothers and sisters is in darkness. Verse 11, and I could almost hear the original readers thinking, is that what John thinks we are? Who is he talking to? Like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, him. You're hearing this, you're like, who is he talking to? Who is he referring to? And John, well, my answer, if the shoe fits, wear it. But in verses 12 through 14, our passage this morning, church, the apostle affirms those who have, in fact, been living out their faith. And in our next section that Pastor Daniel is going to be preaching, he's going to say some really hard things again. So 1 John chapter 2, 12 through 14 is kind of like a pause. Like, all right, I've said some hard things. Let me just remind you as a good grandpa in the faith who you are, what Christ has done. And then I'm going to say some really hard things again. I want to firmly found you and ground you in your identity of what Christ has done before I tell you some hard things. We see this in chapter 2, verse 21. I write these things to you, not because you do not know the truth, so he knows they know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. So again, there's this thing that he's constantly going to be doing. Hey, I'm telling you these things because you already know it, but let me remind you. And if you're not living like that's true, let's, let's hear our provisions to help you walk in those realities again. So he wants to encourage us this morning. And I believe by the Holy Spirit preaching through me of this text, he wants to encourage you this morning too, church. What John does, though, is he speaks to these Christians in a memorable way. If you followed along as Greg was reading, verses 12 through 14, he's repetitive. And a lot of scholars are like, why is he doing this? What is he doing? What? And, and maybe there's some Hebrew parallelism and all this kind of stuff in here. But at the most basic level, what he's doing is he's emphasizing something. If you want something to stick, you say it over and over again. If you want something to stick, you say it over and over again. See what I did there? You repeat yourself. This is a oral oral kind of culture. They're, they're repeating themselves to drive it in. He says a little different the second time. Children, your sins are forgiven. Fathers, you have known the one who is from the beginning. Young men, you have conquered the evil one. Now, let's say it again, but a little different. See, he's getting it in them. Now, let's look at the first group he highlights, he addresses. I write to you little children. Now, I want to let you guys know something we're going to try as pastors here. Anytime I refer to a passage that's not in our text, it's going to be up on the screen. Anytime the passage is the one that is the morning's passage, I'm going to just read it, and I'm going to encourage you to have your Bibles open and to look. This is something we're going to try, because screens are helpful, especially for visitors, but maybe even better is invite visitors to look at the Bible with you. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, I am not the source. I am not the Christ. I am trying to bring you to this and help you find truth here 
not in me. So I want to encourage you to look at your Bibles with us. Bring your Bibles, write in them, take notes. I, we want to train you to be self-feeders, and we're here to help you. So verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Who are these little children? Who are these little children? This term, little children, if you've been reading along with us, shows up six other times in 1 John. In every single context, this term, little children, is not referencing babies or like kids my age, but all of the Christians in the church. Little children. So you're a little child, I'm a little child. How do you like that? And Jesus also used this phrase in John chapter 13, verse 33, calling his disciples little children as well. So, because John starts our section referring to them as little children, the whole church, I take that as a clue, a cue that he is referring to all kinds of people in a spiritual, metaphorical way. So what will follow as he talks about fathers and young men, I take that as primarily not biological age, but spiritual age as he's talking to them. This is a little debated, but overall the majority position among scholarship is that the emphasis is spiritual levels of maturity. And even if you disagree with me, say, hey, I think he's specifically talking to little children only physically, it doesn't ultimately change the troops. And the reality also is that every single thing he says of each group, he says of all Christians at some time in the letter. Does that make sense? So he's not just saying only you people do this and only you people are this. All of them are true, but for whatever reason, which I don't understand fully, he's highlighting certain groups in a way. But it's applicable for all of us here, men, women, little and young, old, all of us here. So we're all little children, okay? Can you say that with me? I'm a little child. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, John, you say it. You are a little child. <laughs> we're all little children. Now, what does that mean? At the very foundation of the Christian life is this simple truth. Christians are forgiven. Christians are like helpless children who can't do anything for themselves. For those of you guys who are parents or have been parents, who have, who've had young kids, they're so helpless. It's exasperating sometimes. Like literally, you, you, we're literally walking five steps and you have to fall. Like we're, we're just like, we're walking here. You have to fall. You're helpless, and that's what we are spiritually. We're needy, we're dependent. They're, Christians are those who realize that they are great sinners in need of an even greater Savior. And there is nothing that can follow or be built upon that foundation if you don't have that foundation. You're not a Christian if you don't get that, bare minimum. And the verbs here in the Greek are in the perfect tense. Don't get overly caught up by the technicality of that, but the perfect tense is this idea of all-time reality. Once and for all, this is always true. They are forgiven by God sometime in the past, and you remain forgiven in the present and also in the future. Let me go one layer deeper. Whenever a Christian sins and God forgives, I've said this before, let me just repeat this for, for memory so we can really get this in. It's relational forgiveness. So when a Christian sins 
And God forgives, it's relational forgiveness. You never left the family, you were not disowned, but your relationship was strained and the spirit of God was grieved. This happens all the time in my marriage. I repent to my wife. It's not like I was no longer a husband or my kids, they repent to me or I repent more often to my kids. It's not like I was disowned and they were disowned. No, there's a strain relationally and that's being reunified. When a non-Christian repents and God forgives, it's a judicial or a forensic forgiveness. What I mean by that is your slate is wiped clean once and for all, your debt is paid, and you are adopted to be part of the family. One time it happens. Not many times, one time. So this once and for all forgiveness that is being declared over us by Grandpa John is this judicial forgiveness, forensic forgiveness. And when we pray and practice 1 John 1, 9 that I preached on like three or four weeks ago, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins, that one, that's a relational forgiveness. You're not re-getting brought into the courtroom. It's already been done. My guy Spurgeon says it like this. It's on the screen, if you can read. The forgiveness of sins is not a matter of degrees or of growth. It is done in an instant and done forever, never to be reversed. The child of God who was born only yesterday is not as completely sanctified as he will be. He is not as completely instructed as he will be. He is not as completely conformed to the image of Christ as he will be, but he is as completely pardoned as the fully grown saint. What does that mean? Some of you are newer in the faith. You were baptized in the last year. You are just as forgiven as I am forgiven, even though I'm going on year 20. That's so good. That's so good. Now, the realization of that forgiveness can grow deeper. And I get my forgiveness way more than I did in 2003. But it didn't change what it happened actually in the heavenlies. Thank you, Jesus. When was the last time, church? I know, again, this is foundational. This is the basics of little children. When was the last time that you just marveled in awe that the fact that you have been forgiven of every sin? Every single one. Every single sin. Just makes me think of this story in Papua New Guinea where this Preacher has been building up to share the gospel for a few years, learned the language, learned the culture, finally got to the story of, of the cross. And uh, one lady who was well-known prostitute in that tribe knocked on his door after his preaching and said, is it true? Every sin? Do you mean it? Really? Every sin? And he's like, yes, every sin. Isn't that so good? Every sin, church. Forgiven. Do you have forgiveness like this? If both judicial, where your sins are wiped clean, your debt is paid, but also relational, where you're reconciled to your creator God, if you're not sure you have this kind of forgiveness, listen, there is great provision for you to have this kind of forgiveness and this kind of intimacy with God. Jesus made it possible. Will you receive that provision? If you're not sure you're in Christ, you have this forgiveness, would you pray with one of us today? We'd love to pray with you. Now, let's look back at verse 12 in your Bibles. Why are they forgiven? What's the reason here? I am writing to you, little children, because 
your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. What does that mean, namesake? We don't use that terminology typically in our culture. If you spent time in the whole of the Bible, this word namesake will come up a lot. Now, I'm going to put it up on the screen, and I'm going to invite you to read it along with me. We're going to sprint through a bunch of passages because it's going to give you a really clear picture, hopefully. 1 Samuel 12, 22. Do you read this? For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Next one, Isaiah 43, 1. Read this with me. But now, thus says the Lord. And then skip down to verse 25. Love this. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Or what, uh, a few more. Ezekiel 20, 44. Let's keep going. Keep reading with me, please. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake. Well, what about one from the New Testament, from Jesus, Matthew 19, 29? Read this. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal. One last one from John in the book of Revelation. Last one, Revelation. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. All right, what is this picture we're given? Man, there's so much good there. But God's reputation, his glory, is intricately connected to our well-being, his people. We belong to him. We bear his name. We represent him to the world. So when we walk in darkness, we wallow in our shame, live in our sin, it not only breaks God's heart, but it poorly reflects God's character. So bring this back to our passage. Look, look at your Bibles, 1 John 2, 12. See, I'm writing a little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So bring it together. What does that mean? It means this. We don't have confidence in God's forgiveness because our repentance is so good or our realization of our sin is so good. Or we had such a great track record this week. None of this will be fully true until Jesus returns. But our confidence is that we belong to Jesus. We bear his name. We represent him. He loves us. He has made us his own. We belong to him. And he's going to make sure we're safely home to the end. Because he loves us. And if you're putting your hope and confidence in Jesus' power and his love, and also, listen, his commitment to his glory, then you can have confidence. He does not shift like our fickle hearts or our roller coaster emotions. He is a solid rock we can put our hope in. Why does he forgive you? Because of his namesake. You are his namesake. You represent him. Now we're going to go and skip a little bit forward in this passage to the next time he references children. This time it's another word for children, but it's the same concept. Look at verse 13. So, we're going to stay on the theme of children, this address to this category. I write to you, children, because you know 
the Father. See that, verse 13? This repetition and order is important. Remember, what did he first say? Little children, you are forgiven. And now he's saying you know the Father. That order is utterly important because you can't know the Father unless you have forgiveness. It is the mending of the relationship that pays way for this kind of intimacy with the Father. Remember, knowing in the Bible is almost never intellectual. It's intimacy. Forgiven children know their Father, not perfectly or fully, but truly. And though forgiveness is the foundation and also throughout the Christian life, it's not the purpose. Did you hear that? Forgiveness is not our purpose. It is what opens the door to our purpose, to know our Heavenly Father deeply, to have a relationship with Him. The gospel is ultimately not forgiveness of sins. That's just one step. It's so that you can be reconciled to the Father and know Him. Which leads to a more mature group in this church, in our church as well, this next group who know at a deeper level. Look at verse 13. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And then verse 14, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Again, he's emphatically repeating himself like an old man does. <laughs> Did I tell you that? No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to make fun of him. He does this on purpose. He's addressing fathers, which I take to be most likely older saints, this is where the passage can get a little tricky because although all of us are children at some level and we have parents, like nobody here was not born, you have a parent even if they were absent or bad, not all of you here are physically fathers like I am. So there's times where the Bible uses metaphors that more directly connect to your context, your situation, and more relevant for you, and sometimes it's not as relevant for you. For example, though I'm a male... I'm also called the bride of Christ. That's kind of hard for me, right? I'm getting used to that. It's, it's been taking a while. My sisters in the faith here, you're also called sons of God. And there's good reasons why you're called sons of God for a lot of really beautiful reasons. Pastors are called in 1 Thessalonians to be like mothers. Not only like mothers, but like mothers in ways. And in the next letter that John writes... 2 John, verse 1, he refers to the whole church as elect lady. <laughs> the elect lady. You guys are the elect lady. How do you like that, guys? So the Bible does this over and over again, and it's hard for most of us, I understand. But God has good design behind these metaphors for all of us, no matter our age or gender. He's trying to teach us characteristics from these different designations, and we get in trouble when we overread into them or ignore them. Hear that? The danger is when you overread into these metaphors and, 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 and designations or just ignore them because they're strange. So consider these spiritual fathers, these spiritual older saints. What uniquely marks them that John highlights? Who do they know? Well, in the previous section, in verse 4, it seems like whoever says I know him is referencing Jesus, as Ross preached last week. But when you hear this word beginning, think 1 John, think John 1, what does that think make you think of? Beginning. Which person of the Trinity? 
Jesus, who was with God, the Father, from the beginning. If you looked at 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 4, you see this. He was there from the beginning. He was manifest. We touched him. We experienced him. So what does that mean? These spiritual fathers in the faith, these mature believers have been knowing Jesus and they still know Jesus. After all these years, what stands is this intimacy with Jesus. Despite deep heartbreak, unmet longings, triumphs and celebrations, they still know Christ. See, it it is easy to know someone for a season. All of us here have good friendships or past friendships that you knew very well, but you don't know them anymore because life happened, sin happened, misunderstandings happened. See, but the test in the evidence of these mature believers is that they still know Christ. Throughout all of these challenges, God has kept them. This is similar to a healthy marriage. You don't just know your wife or your husband when you become a believer, uh, when, you, when you marry them. You know them even more. You go deeper. It's true, yet not full when you first get married. And then it's fuller and fuller and fuller and deeper and deeper as you get older and as you grow with them. That's what's going on with these older saints. They still know them. Not intellectual knowledge, though that's there, but a true living intimacy. Now, John addresses his final group. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. What marks these young men? They have overcome the evil one. What does it mean to overcome the evil one or Satan? I sum it up in three ways if you're taking notes. Number one, you are silencing accusations. You're resisting temptations, number two. And number three, you are persevering in Christ. Silencing accusations, resisting temptation, and persevering in Christ. Let's look at accusation. Let's first look at how Satan accuses us. It's on the screen, Revelation 12.10. Again, whenever you're studying the Bible, you want, to, you want to focus on the immediate context, and then the next would be other letters or books written by the same author, because they use language similarly. Revelation 12.10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, would you read this with me? Now, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God. So what does Satan do? He accuses day and night before God. We see this picture in Job in one sense, in Zechariah 3. And we learn this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, that we have an advocate before with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who stands on your behalf and silences and shuts the mouth of the evil one as he accuses you day and night. That's how we overcome Satan. We have an advocate, not because you overcome Satan individually, but with Christ, he silences the accusations against you. Number two, temptation. Resisting temptation. Now, look at verse 14. He repeats the same call to young men, but he gives them more detail. How do you overcome temptation? Look at 1 John 2, 14. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now we see the power of these young people. He's not like, young bucks, you're strong because you're young. 
And that's where you get your strength. So that is somewhat true in, in reality. But there, these Christians are spiritually mature and are strong uniquely because their strength comes from the word of God, abiding in God's word. And so they're able to persevere against these temptations. And think about what does the word of God do in light of temptation? Think about Jesus in Matthew 4. What happens? He's being tempted by Satan. What does Jesus do? He quotes the word of God and he flees. The word of God is what makes the enemy silenced and also not just silenced, but his lies to fall to the ground as what they are. That's the strength of the young people. So if you think you're young and you're overly confident in yourself because you're young, then that's false confidence. Your strength is from the word of God. Now, final way we overcome the evil one, perseverance. Back to Revelation again. Revelation 12, 11. Would you read this with me? It's gonna be really good for our song later. <clears throat> and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. What does that teach us? There's a lot here, but they make it to the end. They make it to the end despite great persecution and trial. They do it, how? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of the testimony, by the word. That's why I love what we just sang before we started this is the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. So church, I didn't give you a command. I wasn't like, come on guys, let's do this more. I just want to remind you as a, one of your shepherds that you're little children and your sins are forgiven because of Jesus' namesake. You belong to him, you represent him. He's gonna get you there safely home. And also remind you, older saints who've been walking with Jesus, you're one day closer to seeing him. You're one day closer to heaven than you were yesterday. Keep persevering, keep knowing him. And I write to you, young Christians here, to let your strength come from the word of God and to know the Father. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. The worship band can come up. Father, thank you so much for these truths. I want to be like Grandpa John. I want to be able to both call people to greater like you do and like he does. I want to be able to discern truth and lies and falsehood, but I also want to stop and just celebrate in your goodness and what you have already accomplished. Father, for those in here who feel this kind of low-grade rejection, insecurity and uncertainty about their standing with you, your love for them, I pray that at a greater level than ever, that you would help them feel the rush, the warmth of your security, their security in you and your love for them. Help forgiveness of sins be fresh. Help the confidence that we are forgiven, that we are, we know you and that we are victorious in Christ be freshly received, and that would give us hope and strength and energy this week to continue to know you and to walk with you and to overcome the evil one. Father, thank you for this passage for me.
Father, in the ways that my personality, my weaknesses of, of my background hurt my church, please forgive me. Help me continue to grow to be a, a grandfather in the faith like John and to know when to encourage, when to stir on, stir up and exhort and when to just quietly sit and be. Help me grow in that. Help us grow as shepherds in that and help us all grow in that reality, Father. Thank you so much for the preciousness of your word. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, doesn't know this forgiveness, doesn't know this sweet intimacy with Jesus, let this be the day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.